Welcome to this episode of Sound Bites, a podcast series produced by the National Psoriasis Foundation, the nation's leading organization for individuals living with psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. In each episode, someone who lives with psoriatic disease, a loved one, or an expert will share insights with you on living well. If you like what you hear today, please subscribe to our podcast and join us every month at SoundBites for more insights on understanding, managing, and thriving with psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. My name is Corinne Pettit, and joining me today for a discussion about systemic non-biologic therapies is preeminent dermatologist Dr. Kenneth Gordon. Dr. Gordon is the professor and chair of dermatology at Freighter and Medical College of Wisconsin, where he specializes in the treatment of psoriasis. Dr. Gordon is well known in the field of psoriasis, being widely published and involved in clinical trials that have led to the development of several psoriasis medications. Dr. Gordon is also a member of the American Academy of Dermatology and MPF Guidelines Committee, which is responsible for the assessment of evidence and development of guidelines of care for the management and treatment of psoriasis. Today we'll focus on the fifth guideline to be released, which is the guidelines of care for the management of psoriasis with systemic non-biologic therapies. Well, welcome, Dr. Gordon. It's an honor to have you on SoundBites today. So before we begin our discussion about the systemic non-biologic therapy guidelines, can you please identify what factors would prompt the use of oral therapies for the treatment of psoriasis? Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. I think when you think about oral therapies for psoriasis, we first need to think about general systemic treatment for psoriasis. Typically, we like to think about topical therapy or phototherapy as being the first line of treatment for patients. However, when patients have a larger body surface area involved or have resistant psoriasis, including in areas that are hard to treat or are particularly significant, either cosmetically or for quality of life, we do need to be more aggressive. And oral systemic therapies are really no different in terms of why we use them from biologic therapies. It's simply that we have things that you need to treat either more aggressively over a larger body surface area. In terms of specifics for orals, I think there are a few things that really drive our use. One is cost. And if you look in particular at methotrexate, cost really drives some of the use of oral systemics because they are less expensive. On the other side of that though, Many people will have other issues with injectable medications, Um, don't like needles. The people who are needle phobic are not that uncommon. But I think there is quite a bit of room for use of oral systemic therapies. And it's really on those patients who we would use biologics for as well, but have specific circumstances that would drive us to think about using oral medications versus injectable. Given the increase in the number of available biologic therapies, when would an oral medication be chosen over a biologic? I know you already mentioned the cost and the fear of injection as possible consideration. Are there other considerations? Those would be the two biggies. So I think there are a number of times when a patient would choose an oral medication. And the biggest issue is patient preference. There are many patients who would choose not to have an injection, are concerned about what they hear on TV commercials. There are lots of things that could impact a patient's choice. So it's important to have a selection of oral medications, just as it is important to have a selection of topical medications or biologics for the treatment of the patient. So the oral treatment that most people are familiar with is methotrexate, since it's been available for well over four decades as a treatment for psoriasis, and is also used to treat psoriatic arthritis. Originally, this medication was developed to treat cancer, 
So how effective is methotrexate in decreasing the inflammation associated with psoriatic disease, and how is it given? Methotrexate is generally given orally, and it's usually given one day out of the week, either in a single dose or in split doses. It can also be given by injection, but most people will use it orally. This is distinct from the frequency and the level of methotrexate that's used for chemotherapy. And actually, the mechanism of methotrexate is slightly different between the two types of usage. At low dose, which is what we're using to block inflammation, it's primarily used to decrease inflammation and doesn't have a real very large effect on cell cycling and things like that that would be important for chemotherapy. As far as how well it works, methotrexate is pretty good for the treatment of psoriasis. If you look at our outcomes, about half of the patients get a quite good response with the treatment of, of methotrexate. And for that reason, we can say that it's reasonably effective in treating the inflammation of psoriasis. As we've gotten more specific medications and greater use of other medications like biologics, methotrexate's efficacy, how well it works, has been limited a little bit and it pales a little bit in comparison to some of these other medicines. But there are many patients who do very well with methotrexate. And would you say that methotrexate works better as a combination therapy versus a monotherapy? So methotrexate is one of those medications that dermatologists have been experimenting with for many, many years. And it's been used in combination therapy with biologic treatments, topical therapies, and phototherapy. In general, when methotrexate is combined with other treatments, it tends to be more effective. An interesting fact about methotrexate is methotrexate not as a independent therapy being combined, but actually a support for biologic therapy seems to have a significant impact on the benefit of biologic therapy. So methotrexate, especially at very, very low doses, can be a benefit for people who are using biologic therapies. But there are many treatment combinations that have been used with methotrexate over the years. And all of them seem to suggest that methotrexate can work well as a combination therapy. And what are some of the risks and side effects associated with the use of methotrexate? We know liver toxicity is a concern. Are there any other concerns? Methotrexate has developed a bit of a bad reputation over the years for side effects and risk. And that comes from a lot of its use as a chemotherapy prior to being used for the treatment of psoriasis at low dose. That said, there are some risks that we have to always keep in mind. Liver toxicity, particularly in those patients who are drinkers, who are obese or have renal toxicity, have renal failure, is a real concern, and we need to pay attention to that. Moreover, with patients who are using it who have renal problems, or for example, take with other medicines like sulfur antibiotics, you can have problems with hematologic problems, including bone marrow suppression. So we always have to be a little careful about methotrexate. One other thing about methotrexate that we have to keep in close mind at all times is that it is a medicine that can impact pregnancy. And not only for just the woman, but there are some studies that suggest that the man has to be careful about methotrexate as well. So while methotrexate overwhelmingly is a very well-tolerated medicine, we do have to keep in mind the potential liver toxicity along with hematologic toxicity and a constant vigilance about pregnancy issues when using the medicine. So let's now talk about another oral medication, apremolast which is one of the more recently approved oral medications for psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. How is it different from methotrexate, and how does it act differently in the body? Well, Premalast works through a completely different mechanism than methotrexate. Unlike being what we call a cytotoxic agent 
or blocking a specific cytokine within the immune response. Apremolest blocks a molecule called phosphodiesterase 4, which has an impact on multiple different aspects of the immune process. Thus, it's working in different areas than methotrexate and doesn't have some of the same toxicities on the organs, including the bone marrow and the liver, which is a great thing. Apremolest is also given daily, twice a day, unlike methotrexate, which is given once a week. And so it's a very different molecule than methotrexate and has very differing effects. So in April, scalp psoriasis was added as a new label indication for apremolast. Are there other areas where apremolast has been shown to be effective? Well, scalp psoriasis was a new addition to the apremolast label, building on its approval for chronic plaque psoriasis. Pretty much like all medications are approved for psoriasis. There are a number of reports in small studies that show apremolast has been effective in nail disease, in well, psoriatic arthritis for which it's approved, and other areas where it's being tested in small studies, primarily investigated initiated trials in psoriasis. The important thing to remember is apremolast will generally have an impact on most types of psoriasis. That impact might be a little lesser than some of the other medicines we use, but there's a likelihood that it will work in most different types of psoriasis. And what are some of the benefits versus risks associated with apremolast? Apremolast has a very interesting benefit-risk ratio. It doesn't have a high level of efficacy in many patients with psoriasis. That said, in those patients who do do well, it seems to have a good impact and persist for a long period of time. So it's important to remember that while not a lot of patients will get better with the premolase, if you happen to be one of those patients, it's a great thing. The risk profile associated with a premolast is different from some of our other medicines. It's not so much a safety concern, though we don't have great long-term data on the safety of a premolast, there don't seem to be any signals that would raise our eyebrows that make us concerned. The issues with the premolast are more tolerability. There are conditions like GI upset, headache, and things of that sort that are not dangerous, but can be pretty significant nuisances when using a premolast. Much of this will get better with consistent treatment, but not all. The other risks associated with the premolast that I think we have to keep in mind is depression. And the other thing is weight loss. Sometimes people think it's a side effect. It's a great thing because they get to lose weight. No, we don't want people to lose weight because they're on the medication. So while other medicines for psoriasis might have issues with safety, for example, methotrexate and hepatic toxicity, the risk associated with the premolast is much more tolerability, and that balances some of the limitations on the benefits of the medication. So cyclosporine is considered a rapid relief treatment. What are some of the concerns patients should be aware of with regards to the use of cyclosporine? And in your opinion, is the use of cyclosporine for psoriasis declining? So cyclosporine is one of those medicines that made major impact on psoriasis treatment. It's one of those things, when I was starting my career, I was very thankful to having in my armamentarium so I could get patients who were very sick with psoriasis better quickly and predictably. It has a high level of efficacy, and for an oral medicine, it works quite quickly. The question is with cyclosporine is long-term use between high blood pressure, renal toxicity, and multiple other things that have been associated with cyclosporine. It's not a medicine you want to use for the long-term. And as we've learned more about psoriasis and the impact of psoriasis on patients, 
we've come to the understanding that we want to treat psoriasis for the long term and going medicine to medicine isn't a great idea. So the use of cyclosporin is declining because we don't have the need for it quite so much. We have other medications, biologics that can also work quickly and have a high level of predictability and efficacy, which is great. So in the United States, I believe cyclosporin use is declining because we have alternatives that might not have the risks that are associated with cyclosporin. I'd like to add though, in Europe, for example, and particularly in places like Italy, cyclosporin use is still quite high and they use it in a different fashion than in the United States. They allow patients to get better, then stop the medicine and then start it again. It's a different protocol. I prefer to have patients who are able to be controlled and stay that way. I think it leads to greater patient happiness with their therapy, but there are uses of cyclosporin that we need to keep in mind even though it's probably not as necessary as it once was. So if they start and stop cyclosporine, wouldn't that potentially cause psoriasis to flare? Yes. And in fact, that's what happens is that the patients will start on cyclosporine, get a reaction, get better, stop. The patients will be allowed to flare, and that can happen anytime between a couple of months to multiple months after stopping the medication, and then they will be started again. It's a way to dec- decrease total exposure to the medicine but it allows these patients to go on the cycle of getting better than getting worse. That's really not something that I think patients in the United States would tolerate. So switching to another systemic non-biologic agent, how different is acetretin from the treatments we've discussed already? Can you speak to its general use and what are some of these associated risks? Acetretin is one of those medicines that has probably fallen out of favor a bit because we have more effective medicines and they don't have quite the baggage of safety questions that are associated with acetretin. The efficacy of all the oral medicines that we're talking about, acetretin is probably the least effective. There are some thoughts that it works better in the palms and soles or in really severe areas of psoriasis, including postular psoriasis and erythrodermic psoriasis. So that it's approved for some of those indications. Acetretin's data to support it isn't quite as good as many of uh, people seem to think. The downside of acetretin, though, is that it has both safety and tolerability issues. The biggest safety issue is pregnancy, and it can lead to birth defects if used in a woman who gets pregnant. In fact, there are different arguments about when you can use acetretin in a woman of childbearing potential. I actually believe that you can't use in a woman of childbearing potential. I don't think it's appropriate, even though the package insert says in some special cases you can. The other things, including hepatic toxicity and abnormalities in cholesterol can be significant as well. But the biggest problem with acetretin and the reason that most people will probably stop the medication is tolerability, dry eyes, dry lips, and importantly, hair loss, which is a very significant problem with acetretin, is something that will stop people from using the medication. And so acetretin is is actually a pretty difficult medicine to use. It requires a bunch of blood tests to make sure that you're not having toxicity. And the benefit in terms of efficacy is relatively low. And so we don't use acetretin quite so much over time. Now, the one final point of acetretin is there's the thought that all the other medicines for psoriasis do affect the immune system and acetretin doesn't do it quite as much. It's not zero. Acetretin does affect certain cells in the immune system, but there's really never been an association with increased infection with acetretin and retinoids. The vitamin A derivatives, of which acetretin is one, 
are medicines that have been associated with use in some cancer. So people feel comfortable in patients who have had cancer on acetretin. And I think those are all good concerns to have, and I think is a reasonable way to use acetretin. However, when you look very carefully at the data, particularly on biologic therapy, some of those questions are answered pretty well in a way much better than acetretin because they've been studied much better. And so the use of acetretin specifically in those patient populations might not be as unique as once thought. And how about tofacitinib, which is a Janus kinase inhibitor, also known as a JAK inhibitor, for the use of psoriatic arthritis? I noticed it was included in this guidelines, yet it's not approved for the treatment of psoriasis. Can you discuss why it was included? Tofacitinib and the JAK kinase inhibitors in total are something that we're just getting our arms around how to use them in psoriatic disease, both psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. Tofacitinib in specific has been tried in clinical trials for psoriasis and shown to be relatively effective. The problem was at the higher dose of the medication, it had some toxicity issues that the FDA didn't feel comfortable with. So the lower dose that was tried for psoriasis, which wasn't quite as effective, is the dose that's approved for psoriatic arthritis. It doesn't mean that tofacitinib might not have some uses in psoriatic disease. We have a number of patients who have psoriatic arthritis who actually do well on tofacitinib at the lower dose. Additionally, we're beginning to learn that there might be some other forms of psoriasis, particularly palmar plantar disease. There's a condition called acrodermatitis of halipo that are all sort of like psoriasis that might have the JAK inhibitors as the primary treatment in the future. But for now, we don't have an approval for flax psoriasis, and we're using it particularly in those patients who have psoriatic arthritis and prefer to have an oral treatment rather than a biologic therapy. So our use of it over time might be something that increases, but we're just learning how to use these medications. So the other medication option that was mentioned is fumaric acid esters. Can you please speak a little bit about that treatment option? Fumaric acid esters are very common treatments in Europe, particularly in Germany, haven't really caught on in the United States. They're modestly effective and do have some side effect issues, particularly immunosuppression, that I think you have to be careful about. They're very inexpensive. And generally, after you get through an initiation period where there's difficulty with tolerability, they're tolerated okay. I don't think they have great additional benefit over methotrexate or premolast or even really acetretin, and so they haven't caught on in the United States. But there are many parts of the world, particularly Germany, as I said, where the fumaric acid esters are very popular. And do you have any final comments you'd like to share with our listeners about the future of systemic non-biologic therapies? I think that the future of systemic non-biologic therapies, our oral systemic therapies, is actually something that we're going to have to keep in mind. While the last 15 years might be called the era of biologics, Medicines like methotrexate and apremolast have kept on going, keeping oral treatment in our armamentarium. I think in the near future, though, the movement's going to be away from developing new medicines from biologics and into more oral medicines. There are new JAK inhibitors that are being developed and many other mechanisms that could lead to safe and effective treatment for our patients with psoriasis. I like to think of myself as someone who uses a lot of biologic medicines, but I'm also one of the biggest users of oral systemics in the country. And I think it's because I think there are many patients who benefit and prefer the oral medicine 
And as we get better medicines over time, I think that trend will continue. It's going to be an important thing for us to remember as we treat patients with psoriasis for many years. to come. Well, thank you, Dr. Gordon, for providing such a message of hope for the future of oral treatments for our listeners. What a great way to end our podcast. And thank you for taking time to be on Soundbites. For our listeners, if you are in need of more information about systemic non-biologic therapy options, contact the Foundation's Patient Navigation Center by calling 1-800-723-9166, option 1, or by email at education at psoriasis.org. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Sound Bites for people with psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. If you or someone you love has ever struggled with psoriatic disease, our hope is that through this series, you'll gain information to help you lead a healthier life and inspire you to look to the future. Please join us in a couple weeks for another inspiring podcast. You can find this or all future episodes of Sound Bites on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and the National Psoriasis Foundation webpage. To learn more about this topic or others, please visit psoriasis.org or contact us with your questions or comments by email at podcast at psoriasis.org.